Elrod, you were on uh, Hardball last night. How'd it go? Uh, it went well, and you were on Nicole Wallace yesterday. How'd that go? Pretty good. Pretty good. We talked about Trump's uh, very busy schedule that he keeps uh, as an executive, uh, particularly exact his executive time. time. Mm-hmm. Three, four hours a day, a couple meetings, and, you know, and knows some, what Some tweeting, doing. some People Magazine reading, yeah. some uh, nice television work. watching. It's nice work if you can find it. I was going to say, I mean... What, what, what does one have to do to find work like that? I guess you got to run for president. So what So what were you discussing on Hardball? We talked about um, the announcements, the presidential announcements that had taken place over the weekend or that took place over the weekend. So we talked about Elizabeth Warren's announcement, Amy Klobuchar's announcement. We also touched on can a more moderate Democrat win a primary, win a primary in this environment? Um, and we all concluded yes, but it's, a little bit more difficult than it used to be, perhaps. Yeah. yeah, I thought Klobuchar had a really good announcement speech. You know, it'll be interesting to see how long she can make this rollout last. I think Kamala Harris did a great job of sort of stretching it out over the course of a week, right? Uh, but I thought the the actual scene in Minnesota of her with the snow, sort of, you know, emphasizing her grit and toughness, a, uh, a speech that could have been delivered uh, the night of a not, you know, accepting the Democratic nomination, where she reached out to both, you know, both Democrats, Republicans, independents, showcasing her broad appeal, her Midwestern values. I thought she really accomplished a lot in that speech. Oh, I thought she was fantastic. I mean, she knew that she was not going to be able to build a very large crowd outside in a very snowy part, <laughs> very snowy day, cold day in Minnesota. Um, you know, she also leaned into the fact that she doesn't have this giant campaign apparatus. She wasn't using a teleprompter, um, but she's a scrappy, gritty Midwesterner who has a history of working with Democrats and Republicans to get the job done, and that's what she's going to take to the people in this primary. I thought it was really effective. My dear friend Doug Landry, who did a lot of advance for Hillary Clinton's campaign, uh, duly noted how difficult it is to build that kind of site and that kind of weather as well. So major props to her. It shows dedication from her team. Um, that they're willing to go out there for a couple days and, and, and put this together in that kind of cold weather. I don't think every single presidential candidate in this, can, in this race so far could probably attract that kind of, um, you know, dedication from their team. Um, but, but look, if she, can, if she can get, you know, if she can do well in Iowa, if she can do well in some of the two, Super Tuesday states and stay in this race, she would be a great vice presidential pick. Um, and it's the Republicans have made it very clear that somebody like her um, potentially ascending to the nomination would really scare the shit out of them when it comes to <laughs> trying to beat Trump, for lack of a better term. So she, I thought she had a, a, a sharp message, a pretty coherent message, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about message today. We're going to talk a little bit about media, paid advertising, with a, a very good friend of ours, David Dixon. David is the partner at Dixon Davis Media Group. Uh, He has worked on a number of presidential campaigns as one of the members of their advertising team, the Obama media team in 2008 and 12. He was a part of the team for Hillary Clinton in 2016. He also has has uh, the distinction of representing a quarter of the Senate Democratic women, which is very impressive. And he helped elect uh, Maggie Hassan and my old boss, Chris Van Hollen, and uh, and most recently, uh, Senator Cinema in uh, Arizona. Uh, David, like Adrian and I, also worked at the DCCC. 
uh, a committee that I think we back all back in the day. Back in the day, a committee we all love. What cycle were you there, David? Ninety four. Oh five, oh six, and Thornell, you were there. Oh seven and oh eight, mm-hmm. and a little bit of oh nine and ten. Mm-hmm. Um, David, so first of all, welcome to the electables. Welcome, we, David. We, this is an honor for us to have you, and we're really going to try to help our listeners understand the world of paid advertising and messaging and media, and and how these campaigns are probably going to approach this campaign, uh, this upcoming campaign trends that you're seeing. Why don't we start with just how did you get started in this business? Well, one, thank you guys for having me. Uh, this is an awesome podcast, and <clears throat> I'm honored to be a part of it. Um, I, I guess I was politicized when I went to the University of New Hampshire. I went to college up there, and I was there in 1982, actually, when the 1984 Democratic primary was just getting mm-hmm. started. And that started extra early that year. The day I moved into the little town I lived in in New Hampshire, Newmarket, New Hampshire, Walter Mondale was in the, the little Mondale was up there campaigning. And Jesse Jackson, Gary Hart, you know, Alvin yep. Cranston. So I was able as a student at University of New Hampshire to literally to see these candidates all kind of come through. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was very exciting for me as a student. And I, I was really sort of politicized at that point. And I went on to do some work up there for the League of Conservation Voters. And then I actually worked for the first Gore for President campaign. That mm-hmm. A lot of people don't remember in 1987, 1988, Al Gore ran for president of the Democratic primary. I was in New Hampshire, worked for him there, went to a couple other states, and and that didn't work out. Who else was running in that primary? Paul Simon, Mike Dukakis. Right. Um, and so Dukakis did very well in New Hampshire because mm-hmm. of the regional. Charlie Baker. Yep, yes, yes. We and, love Charlie. And uh, Jesse Simon, ran that year, too. Jesse ran and mm-hmm. did very well. And that was sort of, you know, sort of Gore's challenge. It was the Super Tuesday strategy, which they executed pretty well or we executed pretty well. I was in Georgia at that time, but Jesse really did well too. Yeah. And then actually the Dukakis people uh, did very well in terms of the delegates. They had a good little delegate program, so they didn't do well overall in the popular vote, but they came out of Super Tuesday with probably more delegates than people had expected. Right. Because they had a congressional delegate program. So by the way, quick aside, I, as Doug knows very well, I am super obsessed with the way campaigns this in this presidential primary will handle the delegate process, both at the state level and if it goes to the convention floor. So I think that, I mean, we can do it, we, and we will do an, an entirely different episode at some point just on delegates. It's very fascinating. Well, it's, and it's a, it's a look, it's a challenge that the Gore campaign had in way back then is like, if you do well on Super Tuesday, where do you go next? Mm-hmm. And do you have resources to sort of compete with those delegates? And the Dukakis people, I would say, probably had a better program to sort of deal with that. And, and that matters. All of that has a huge impact. And certainly that's what, what Plouffe and his team did on the Obama campaign in 08. They really yes, had a they, good plan. I was on Hillary campaign in 08. I did the delegate stuff toward the end, and they had a much better strategy. They had a good chapter, too. So uh, so I, I did that. I worked for Gore, and then that campaign ended, and then I got some recommendations to do some next jobs, and a young field strategist at the DCCC, Rahm Emanuel, was the field director there when Rahm's tour of duty in 1988 was there, and so Rahm- <laughs> He was my boss Rahm sent, sent me out to a campaign in Utah- uh, where I was doing, I was basically a communications guy. I was doing press for LCV. That's what I did for some Gore stuff. And I worked on a congressional campaign out in Utah and met the media consultant who worked on that campaign, a guy named Joe Slade White. 
who Joe was a great media consultant, still is, and uh, built a good relationship with Joe, worked on that campaign, and then Joe hired me to open his Washington office. Joe did some. Joe did a lot of uh, advertising for uh, Vice President Biden, right? Yes. Yep. He, he was been, he's been Biden's TV guy and sort of his Senate races over the last sort of couple decades. Right. And, uh, and then Joe, uh, Joe was based in New York. And Joe was sort of brought a very creative uh, approach to advertising. And many of the advertising people in Washington, those sort of political consultants that were based here, mm-hmm. were very documentary in their, you know, in their initial start. You know, the people that worked in the production people that they use or, you know, worked at the Smithsonian or National Geographic. Discovery was just going in the D.C., you know, consulting community, you know. Not overwhelmingly, it was had more of a documentary feel on how the ads were produced in the 70s and early 80s. And Joe was sort of revolutionary. He was up in New York editing there in studios where music videos were being made. He had a real focus on on audio and sound and copywriting and just sort of a little different edge. And it was a great opportunity for me because I opened the Washington office to sort of interface with the campaigns and like the DCCC and the DSCC and the governor's races and the campaigns right. that were really starting to sort of build out needing more strategic communications, you know, mm-hmm. help with, you know, your debate prep, you know, what your free press plan was, your budgeting. And Joe, you know, was the, was the advertising guru. And it worked great for me because I was really able to sort of apprentice and learn about advertising from Joe. And I brought the services to him that I had sort of acquired. So, did that for a couple cycles. Then I did my tour duty at the DCCC and uh, then started my own business and, and went out and initially in 95 and 96 and we're doing house races and won a bunch of those and then brought on my partner, Rich Davis. We joined up in about 2000, 2002 and Rich and I have been together ever since. It's been a great partnership. You know, all those races you talked about at the beginning that we worked on, we've worked on together and, you know, we sort of built a reputation on doing Tough races in states with, you know, tough swing voters, purple states. Yep. Kathleen Sebelius, Claire McCaskill, you know. Mike uh, Ross. Mike Ross. Arkansas Four. Exactly. We beat Jay Dickey twice, you know, down there. So we had some good wins and um, and then started doing more and more statewides. And as Doug mentioned, we've been honored to do a lot of women, both members of the House and Governor uh, Hassan, Governor Sebelius, but in the Senate, you know, we've been able to do a lot of women senators, Senator Stabenow, Senator Gillibrand, Maisie Hirono, Hassan, Hagan, now Kirsten Sinema, you know, so it's been a, it's, it's been a, a, a fun endeavor and we enjoy the client base that we have. And uh, I still think winning campaigns today is as much about advertising that we provide, but it's also that strategic communications that I think our firm was built around and sort of just, it's, it's not just the TV, radio, and digital ads. It's that strategic communications that we help out in the campaigns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you guys are two of the best in the business, which is why we're so lucky to have you here today. And and David and I both worked on, I used to work for Mike Ross from Arkansas, I just mentioned back in the day. Um, And I got to know David when he was doing Mike's ads. So um, we, we do people know you're from Arkansas, together. Elrod? I don't, I don't think know. we've actually no. formally uh, no. done the. the I never talk about the Razorbacks. I never talk about. No, I'm kidding. I think everyone probably <laughs> is guessing that I'm from somewhere in the South. Um. So, David, take us from start to finish. What What is the process, especially in this current day and age, of producing an ad? Like, if you're sitting down with a candidate, if you're sitting down with a client. And you are conceptualizing an ad. You're deciding what topic to cover, how to do it. I mean, take us, give us like a, the one minute version of 
what it from start to finish what it takes. Well, you guys know me. I can't do much in one minute, but I will well, give you the you, version. Okay. Yeah. Take, take, as take as much time as you need. So, 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 so let's do this. Let's think about a positive ad because mm-hmm. there's sort of, you know, obviously two kinds of ads in political advertising. You have sort of the positive ads telling a candidate's story, and then you have, you know, a disqualifying ad, a negative ad, or mm-hmm. some people would say a hard positive. Um, so let's go through the positive ads because in some ways ha- positive ads are probably harder to make than people think, you know. Um, and so when you're with a client or a campaign, you know, Rich and I sort of start with the premise on after you watch an ad, after your ad runs on whatever medium you're playing it on, how do you want the person to feel? What's the one thing you want to take away from that thing? And, you know, sometimes that's driven by research, polling, focus groups, and sometimes it's very much of a character-driven ad. And I think we're moving more and more in that direction. And so what's the character of the candidate? What motivates the candidate to have that position? What motivates the candidate to run for this office? And so what are the things about the candidate that you're trying to impart with the with the viewer? And sometimes that's an issue. You know, sometimes you have an ad about health care or their plan on the economy, but more and more, we like to focus on things on what motivates them as a candidate, you know? And so we'll design an ad, we'll write a script, write a concept, get it to the campaign a couple of weeks before we go out and do a shoot. So they sort of have their input and, and they work through it with us. And then if we're doing an ad with a shoot, you know, we'll set up a shoot, which is, you know, pretty traditional sort of advertising production film shoot, not the scale of a car company or a Beale commercial. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in some states and the campaigns we've worked on together, you know, it's a medium-sized shoot. And more and more, we're actually doing interviews with the candidates. We'll we'll sometimes we'll do scripted into the camera with the campaigns, but a lot of times we'll actually interview the candidate on the topic we're actually want the ad to be about. And, and so this here is more genuine. Well, it is more genuine. Yep. It's just because the, it's in the end, it's always the candidate's words. But it's if it's if it's communicated in a way that's sort of more, I just think, sort of off the cuff and sort of genuine. We do that. So we shoot both ways. And we, we, we will. So we'll, we'll do a film shoot or, you know, HD video shoot these days. And then we'll bring it back and we'll edit down the, 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 the spot. And we'll make it into a 30-second ad, sometimes a 60-second ad, uh, depending on, on what format we're going after. You know, we'll add the graphics, you know, some texting. Um, and we, we score all of our original music at our firm. We have a person that sort of works and sort of does the music. Because as I said before, the, you know, one of the things I learned from Joe and Rich and I are big believers in is that the audio is important in a television ad. A lot of people are, you know, in the other room making coffee or dealing with their kids or looking on their phone or whatever. So if there's something about an ad that catches your ear, whether it's the voiceover or the music. And uh, so we do that. And then, you know, we'll get that ad. We'll get a cut over to the campaign. They'll usually have a couple tweaks, not as many as you'd think. And then we'll sort of bring it back and do the final production on it. You know, closed captioning, lots of quality control. Make sure everything's spelt properly. No ads on education. Would not be good if there was a misspelling that went out on a big media buy. Yeah, on the education ad, you misspell the word education or something. No. <laughs> so we've been lucky not to have many of those things. And then we ship them out to stations, which is a lot more complicated than people think these days on getting getting ads out. But that's, that's generally the process. And look, sometimes that's a three-week process. You know, you get some concepts, do a shoot. Put it, you know, come back to the studio, edit the spot, and get it out. But there are times when we've turned ads around in four or five hours, too. Right. Especially sort of response ads to maybe an attack from a Republican committee or your your opponent. 
Exactly. You have to turn that around quickly. Exactly. And so we're able to do that. And there we just sort of, you know, get a script to the campaign almost instantaneous while you're sort of working with the comms team and uh, write a, you know, get the script, almost start working on the ad while the script's being approved, make the ad, edit it, get approval and ship it out and, you know, sometimes get it on the air that very same day. It, when you're putting together the concept for the ad, you're obviously, you and, and, uh, rich and the campaign, you're not just sort of like, you know, coming up with the message out of thin air, right? You are working closely with the polling team and the messaging that has been sort of discovered in polling. Obviously, the candidate has their own, you know, they have their voice, they have the things that they want to fight for. They're not totally driven by, you know, what the poll says. But obviously, polling does help sort of inform the the ad a bit, right? Well, I think polling sort of forms the direction you want the advertising to go. I don't think polling necessarily says you need to make an ad that says these four things. I think polling says we need to reassure voters or introduce this concept of voters that you're going to do a good job on education or here are your ideas on environmental protection. You know, and so it's up to us and the candidate at times to sort of say, okay, what's the best way for us to communicate our stewardship on environmental protection for Shelley Pink, Eric Klein in Maine or something that we're doing up there? And then, and, and more often than not, it's, it's some of the concepts we have come from conversations with the candidate or conversations with the team overall that you've had in retreats or at focus groups or whatever of just ideas and sort of a small accomplishment. That mm -hmm. oftentimes members of Congress or senators or even first-time candidates, there'll be smaller things that people have done that somehow tell a bigger story about them. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, you 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 know, rewrote the Environmental Protection Act. Sometimes it could be sort of the you know how you sort of got more money for sort of you know lobster fishermen and what's going on in Maine. That sort of it, it seems small if you you know show the ad to someone in Nebraska or Southern California. But in Maine, sort of a small accomplishment can sort of tell a bigger story about someone's stewardship. And that often is more believable to a voter than if it's you're trying to say you changed the entire world. So it's uh, it comes through conversations. It comes through different uh, different places on campaigns. And I think we take pride. And sometimes ideas come from campaign staff, from volunteers and candidates' family. And if someone has a good idea for a spot or a way of communicating, you know, we're like, great, let's do it. Let's shoot it. Let's film it doesn't have to come from us you know we're generally the producers on those right right so david i'm fascinated by the sort of evolution the digital evolution between um you know broad the importance and relevance of broadcast media versus digital online everybody of course is on their phones staring at their phones 24 7 um viral videos that used to you know the moved around facebook we kind of didn't take super seriously on hillary's campaign in 2016 probably should have taken them a little bit more seriously because they certainly had an impact. So as an expert in this field, how do you think the digital evolution and its growing influence on the way we consume information is impacting traditional forms of paid media? It's really important. But I, I think you have to start from the premise that content matters most. You know, we're really in the business of content creation. You know, your, your phone, if you look at it and turn it sideways, is a 16 by nine sort of screen, like your television screen is in your house or the one at the bar 
or you know sometimes they even have them in cards now so it's really where you're and and sometimes you're holding your phone in the vertical way and you have to reformat the ad that way but think about it this way is that, that that's a that's a platform on how you're getting that information and you know campaigns have to be very cognizant of what platforms different demographics are using to get that information and yes younger people you know, generally, but, you know, even middle-aged folks are using their phones more and more. And so that is a, a platform you have to deliver information on. But I start at the premise of what's the content that you're delivering it to them on? Because they're, the ad, the viral video you talked about, wasn't good because it was on a phone. Mm -hmm. It was good because it was a compelling video. Right. You, you know, right. and so it just happened to be served on your phone. So I think you have to be as an ad maker and, a, and as a comms person in these campaigns today, you have to be cognizant of both. You have to say, what content are we creating that really either catches people's eyes, that can go viral, that communicates a message about a campaign or a brand about a candidate, both positive or how to disqualify a campaign. You create that content and then you figure out what's the best way to disseminate it. And certainly the digital platforms now are really efficient in terms of super targeting people. They're very good at sort of target, starting this conversation sort of early before you do broadcast mm -hmm. and campaigns. But you know, we do six second ads, 15 second ads, sometimes 30 second ads, and even the six longer- Six second ads, yep, wow. They're, they're, those are the ones that are, you know, that are sort of for people that don't have as much information about a candidate, you know, or you can draw them into your longer format ad, you mm -hmm. know, but I mean, we've done a lot of, in the Hassan race, Against Kelly Ayotte, we used a lot of six and 15 second ads just to talk about her votes on Planned Parenthood. She had voted six times to defund Planned Parenthood. And it was a very simple message in southern New Hampshire where it's very hard to communicate people in the Boston media market. Younger women were a right. big These are pre-roll ads, right? Exactly. And, and, um, and saying Kelly Ayotte voted six times to defund Planned Parenthood actually fits quite easily in six seconds. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that would lead people to the testimonial ads of the 30-second ads that we had done of women who were sort of upset with her about it or families that were upset. And so 6, 15, and 30s kind of all work together in that. But I can, we, we can talk about buying in a second. But, yes, the digital platform is very important of understanding it. But it's, it's more than just you know, being able to serve you an ad on Hulu or serve you an ad on right. your publishing site like you're watching Post.com. It's what's in it that also matters. And then a quick follow-up to that, um, and I know we're going to talk about budgeting too, but just on that front, I know back in the olden days when I was at the DCCC, um, it, I forget exactly how sort of what the, the general rule of thumb was in terms of how to apportion your budget and how to appropriate, you know, X percentage of your budget that you raise during a campaign cycle to broadcast media, but it was a lot. How do you think that has changed? I mean, I know that you're saying we produce the content, then we decide how to disseminate it, but is there kind of a general rule of thumb that X percentage of your advertising budget should now be spent on digital? I mean, we didn't even have digital right. at the D-Trip in 06. Right. Well, let, let me take one step back. I think at our firm, we're believers that winning campaigns today is about blended impressions. When you do a media campaign, especially if you're doing a big governor's or Senate races, and you're introducing a candidate to a state, they're gonna, voters are gonna get information in a lot of different ways. And it's really important for the media team and the campaign manager to sort of be committed to blended impressions. Because 30 years ago, you could buy TV ads on the three networks in that state, you know, and be pretty confident you're talking to 70 to 80% of the vote or add a little radio in, maybe a little direct mail, and you, you had it. Now, 
you know, in most states, there's six or seven, you know, broadcast channels, 100 cable channels, all the digital platforms, you know, for those people that are watching that, you know, and then you have, you know, direct mail, you have radio, you have, you know, so, you know, um, satellite radio. So in a modern campaign today, you need to step back and say, how are we going to sort of do blended impressions? What's the mix of broadcast, cable, digital, direct mail, field, word of mouth, our party is starting to use very effectively of literally knocking on people's doors on both get out the vote and persuasion mm -hmm. opportunities, texting. And so I would say the rule of thumb that we've always sort of used that 70 to 75 percent of your overall budget should go to voter contact, should go to those blended impressions. Right. And then within that, how much of that should be broadcast and cable versus digital and mail? The answer to that question is who your targets really are, you know, in a state like North Dakota, you know, older states like Michigan and, and Wisconsin, you know, more of the voters are going to be 45, 50 plus. And so they're still going to be disproportionately getting more of their information on television, cable. And so but if you're in some of these, you know, uh, states like California or Florida and stuff and your targets tend to be younger voters, you need to have more of a percentage of your budget on digital and, 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 and even some mail and, you know, texting in different ways to get to them. So I think the rule of thumb now is 15 to 20% of the buy in terms of the persuasion buy goes on digital uh, and the rest is on broadcast TV and cable, but don't overlook direct mail. Direct mail is being, we're using it more and more. We kind of, kind of, we didn't use it as much four or five years ago. Yeah. I think the Republicans saw that it was pretty effective. I mean, it, it correlates with less people watching television. Sure. You know, and so. And skipping over ads. And skipping over ads. And people sort of say, oh, people move around. Well, if you register your vote, you're at least there for that time you're registered to vote at that address. It's mm -hmm. true, people are transient. Good point. But people are there, and there's some data out there that young people don't get the big stack of mail that 60-year-olds get. You know what I mean? When they get two or three pieces of mail coming in, they actually look at it. I'm kind of they, right there in the middle. Exactly. <laughs> and so, so, and, and I think that a bunch of the campaigns we've done the last couple of cycles, we've had a, an important mail budget uh, and that's been pretty effective for us. So on, on top of creating the ad, you also are involved in the media buying strategy, which is an art in and of itself. Uh, there's some firms that have their buying team in-house. There are other firms that outsource that piece, but work closely with the buyer. But talk us through how precise that we've gotten in targeting our ads, because we've come a long way in just 10 years, right? Like There are ways we can literally do geofencing around a building and, and target folks who are in a building with an ad, right? So I'm just curious, the evolution in media buying strategy, I, as someone who's you know been uh, in the business for a while, seen a lot of changes, can you talk us through talk us talk to us about that evolution? Yeah, good question. One is going back as I said, you know, 20 30 years ago, let's say 30 years ago. There really were three broadcast networks in a town, Omaha, Nebraska, maybe a couple cable networks you would even consider CNN, ESPN were just starting, but you could buy those and know that you were getting 70 to 80% of the audience. And oftentimes media teams and the buyers would just come in and sort of from top down, sort of just, you know, literally like B-52 bombing, you know, and right. just buy as much broadcast as you would, you know, this crazy new thing called cable. Today, the philosophy we take, and I think the best buyers in the industry do, we've reversed that. We sort of say, who are the voters that we want to talk to? 
and what are their media habits, and we buy back from them. So as opposed to sort of dropping from the top, we say, okay, if we want to reach women 35 to 65 who are, who are less educated and who have an income level of this, we are able with the data available to us from the, from the stations and the platforms that are selling us the time to get that data. And the things that a lot of campaigns do today is we also can match that data to the research we've been doing in the campaigns, whether it's the modeling research, the polling research, past voter history, some behavioral stuff, and able to match those two together. And so build the buy backwards. And so you say if a woman 35 to 65, little less education, here are the programming and habits that they have. And then we'll develop the buy and, you know, we'll buy some broadcast television for that target group, it'll be more prime time, more sort of appointment television, maybe some early morning news, really early morning news, like the news is from five to seven, not even people getting to the Today Show or Good Morning America, that, that news program. Then you have the cable programming and the cable platforms that they watch. And again, more of that, people don't recognize it in cables. Every, every quarter, 10 or 15 of the most important prime television shows are actually on cable. You know, and so you're buying, you know, the, the, the programming on cable and sort of the weekend program that people are there. And then we'll fill it out, especially with those women targets, with uh, digital platforms, you know, whether it's Hulu or YouTube or Facebook takes up a lot of it and sort of go after those voters and build sort of a blended buy that way and, and, and place it. And, you know, generally we run those 30 seconds ad, but some of those formats – you know, do lend themselves more to 15-second pre-roll spots and even sometimes the six-second spots. I have a quick follow-up on this. What is a trend in either media buying or just the, you know, the art of political advertising that we should keep an eye on? Um, two trends that I would say. One is, back to my content thing, sort of what you mentioned, Adrian, the viral video. I think 60-second spots are playing a bigger, bigger role in sort of when you yeah. are buying broadcast television. You know, That's for broadcast television. But, but it, wow. Like, look at sports. You know, sports mm -hmm. is something that, you know, look, you see a lot of Apple ads. You know, you don't see very many Apple ads on your phone, right? Apple, Apple's a pretty big company. It's a digital yeah. company. Where do you see their ads? On television. On television. See a lot of Google ads. Mm -hmm. I've been, this last week, both in sports and on even on sort of cable news, I've been seeing a lot of DoorDash ads. Yeah. How many DoorDash ads you've seen the last couple of weeks? Last that's time I checked. a really good point. It's Dash, pertaining to Apple and Google. Yeah, well, DoorDash, that's all it is, is an app to, to get burgers, you know, and right. whatever. So, um, and they're, brought, they're in te television. And they're, they're live programming live news. So, uh, but the content of 60-second spots, to sort of go back to the, your question there, though, is that the 60-second spots, I think, are playing a bigger, bigger role because you can connect with a voter. Once you get someone's attention, you're really telling the story. And it's actually worth the impression. Kind of in the old days, Doug, you know, you would just sort of say, let's just do a thousand points and just bang, impression, impression. Right. Now the impression's more valuable. Once you do get someone and they're watching your spot, let's let's tell them the whole story. And so I think we're seeing more of that. And that that relates to the viral videos, the content. You saw a lot of that this last cycle where a lot of campaigns kind of introduce themselves as sort of clever and sort of emotional videos. So I think connecting, giving people the authentic, you know, authenticity of who people are. I think that's an important trend or a trend I would encourage people to to follow. And then uh, I just said it before. I mean, I think certainly the Facebook and the Instagram, you know, trend the non-paid part of that, 
I think what we're seeing in a lot of campaigns now is that digital, you know, some people throw the word digital out. What does it mean? You know, mm -hmm. oh, that campaign spent 600000 on digital. Well, there are really three silos of digital, in my opinion. One is emails. You know, mm -hmm. a campaign has a strong email program to raise money for their campaigns. And that's important. But that's digital. You'll see that on a campaign report. Right. And that's not, it's, those in communications are important to the voters, but that's not persuasion. The second sort of silo is the social communications, the narrative building that someone like AOC has brilliantly done. That has all been done through her Facebook, Twitter, Instagram posts, not paying for it, but just sort of communicating her brand. And not even putting money behind it. No, exactly. Not even pushing things around. It's just sort of, and there's some campaigns, like Brian Schatz, a client of ours, Chris Murphy, they're very good at that. You know, they communicate their own brand through those sort of social comms platforms. And more and more, the campaigns need to be very attentive to that. Sure. But that's not paid. That That's something you have right. to work on. So I think the trend of like, what your campaign doing is producing quality Facebook, Instagram, Twitter communications about Doug Thornell and why Doug Thornell wants to be your congressman. Right. Uh, is is there something I should know, Doug? Well, no, 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 but I mean. But, David and I have been talking. Yeah, exactly. But, but, but that's not, again, that's not something we go sit in the studio and create. That's something that's happened. And that, that is, some people are good at it. Some people need assistance. And then the third platform of digital is the paid persuasion we've talked about. And I think more and more seeing more and more of that on Facebook and on these sort of sites where people are watching shows again or they're getting their first cut at shows on YouTube or publishing sites, uh, mm -hmm. I, I think is the trend. But again, content, content, content. I think for the last 10 years, we've all been sort of, hey, this digital thing is cool. You can serve an ad on your phone. Everyone kind of gets that now. Now we're sort of back to what are we serving? Right. Right. And on that note, um, I have a dear friend named Tally Sargent who ran for Congress in West Virginia's 2nd Congressional District this last cycle. Um, she unfortunately fell short, but she had really good digital content, which allowed her to kind of you know, have this viral following in West Virginia. Um, and a lot of it was just her walking around with her phone, chatting you know, with all of her Instagram followers about what she was doing that day. And where she was, and you know, you're seeing it on a larger scale with somebody like Beto O'Rourke, who has really created this huge viral following by, you know, you know, also showing himself, I guess, getting like a dental cleaning, which was maybe going a little too far. But the point is, it's just very interesting to see how you know people are creatively creating this, you know, new set of followers by basically spending no money um, to create viral content that's not produced by you know a media company but it is literally produced by themselves right and who who is probably the king of digital content uh donald trump donald trump exactly. yes and so that, thankfully we don't see a lot of videos that he posts on instagram to my knowledge that he's doing himself thankfully well he even gets that sometimes that looks too staged or whatever i mean his videos you know sort of come from his performances and those sort of press conferences that he likes to do outside in front of the white house and he's right. talented at it and your friend is talented and the, so that's what i think that's where the trend is going mm -hmm. if you're sort of at a head of recruiting at party committees background are important but like who has the talent to communicate like your friend does mm -hmm. because fundamentally that person is able to communicate with a voter about their lives, about her life, what yep. motivated her, what she chose to talk about and put on there. So that, that I think, is 
in part sort of the direction of where things are going. It's not just the media, what you can put in a nice 60 second spot, but you have to have the sort of the content of the talent of the person. Right. And, and I think the digital age is sort of showing who's kind of good at that and who's not. We'll see in the 2020 class, like who, because they can't all do paid ads. I mean, after this sort of first wave of everyone introducing themselves, sort of chapter one, chapter two is going to be interesting. Right. Because there's going to be this time before they all go up on TV on what they're going to do and say about themselves. Yep. And how authentic is that going to look? How compelling is that going to be? And so that's going to be the big challenge. Is it going to look too contrived or is it going to seem very natural? Exactly. Right. And are they talking about something I care about? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So switching gears a little bit, um, David, without naming names, are there any nightmare shoots that still haunt you? <laughs> I have a good story on shoots. Fortunately, I think Rich and I do a pretty good job on shoots. So of mm -hmm. course we've had some crazy shoots with sideways snows and car accidents and stuff. But <laughs> my favorite shoot story is actually a pitching a client into a shoot story. So I was a little younger and I pitched a client. I won't mention that client's name. And I was working hard to try to get the client. A good colleague of mine ended up getting the race. Ooh. And it was, I heard it was tough call for the candidate, but you know, they yeah. chose this one. He, yeah. they, were, they were a little more yeah. experienced. And so, you know, I kind of felt bad. And then about five months later, at 8.45 in the morning, I got a phone call and I picked it up and it was that other consultant. Mm -hmm. And he just said, F you. <laughs> You can say the word, by the way. I hate you. F you. I go, why? What's going on? He goes, you know, that client I got, I'm doing a shoot now, and it's 845, and we're on our third makeup artist because, oh, <laughs> because no. the client. 845 a.m. or a.m. Okay. in the morning. Wow. Yes, exactly. Yeah, they started at like 530 or 6, and the client was so crazy about the makeup Whoa, they had to do. that. And so, and he was like, I, you know, I can't believe I ended up signing this. I wish you had gotten it or whatever like that. So that's my sort of fantasy <laughs> shoot story that another friend of mine had that bad experience. What do they say about karma? Exactly. exactly. How, my question also is, how in the world do you find three different makeup artists at by or nine a.m. Well, two, two, right? two, well, one, it was in a city that had a lot, and two, to that person's credit, their production team was pretty good. I guess so. Mm -hmm. They might have anticipated that could happen. Boy, wow. So you were part of the past three advertising teams for the Democratic uh, nominee, Obama, in two thousand eight, and Obama's reelect twenty twelve, and then. Uh, Secretary Clinton's campaign in 2016. Without, you know, divulging too many secrets, I'm just curious, any any differences between the teams? And looking back on 16, is there anything you would do differently? Um, anything that the two, that the Obama and 12 did differently than in 08 and Clinton did, did then uh, different in 12? Fair question. And I think in the end, uh, in many ways, the teams were similar in their makeup, and, and a lot of us had worked together before and sort of shared some philosophies on advertising and stuff. So in terms of the actual ads that we produced, there wasn't you know, a ton of difference. But I, I think the difference in the Hillary campaign versus the Obama campaign was in 16, there was more of an emphasis on efficiencies. You know, I think the campaign was just more focused on targeting, modeling, how can we do it? slightly more efficient, 
maybe spend a little less money. Screams Robbie Mook style right there. And 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 and, and it's it, Robbie and a lot of other people. I think it was it was the ethos of the entire campaign, you know. And it was sort of how do we sort of figure out who's most precise? Go after that. Probably a little more emphasis on sort of base and sort of turnout rather than persuasion. And and we I talked th- a lot about the data the data analytics polling that with uh, Naveen. Yeah. In our last episode. Yeah. And we had an, a huge in-house operation that grew to about 70 people toward the end. Right. And, and, and look, let's all remember that everybody's polling, including the Republicans, including the media, has always had Trump behind, you know, in some cases substantially. Much. And so there was not a lot of reason to sort of rock the boat. I mean, not a lot of people are running around with their hair on fires. Having said that, I think the one difference was I think the Obama campaign took a slightly more comprehensive view of the 17 or 18 targeted states, uh, especially with their positive advertising. You know, in the in the in eight and 12 and eight, we were sort of still introducing, you know, the senator. And in 12, you know, there was obviously some negative advertising sort of pushing back around me, but there was always a pretty consistent wave of positive advertising mm-hmm. in the 17 or 18 states. And in the Clinton campaign, we didn't do as much positive advertising, I can say. And I think that, you know, part of that was we probably didn't in the end tell her story as much as I would have probably in retrospect, looking back, I mean, everyone sort of knew about her. She had such a high name ID, of course, and everything and had been branded. But there were some stories about her, as I said before, sort of little things that she had done in life or little accomplishments, her 9-11 bill, just certain things that she had done that may have yeah. that may have told a bigger story, even some ads we made. But maybe we should have just been running them in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and, and Michigan a little earlier. And the Obama campaign just went on the air earlier. They they had more resources and they were just committed to that. So it, you know, it's not a mistake. It's in retrospect you can always analyze it. But that that's probably the biggest difference. And you know, David, you'll recall that we did at the beginning of the campaign, knowing that you know Hillary Clinton had 100% name ID in America. Um, people either had, you know, a very well-formed opinion about her and they liked her or they had a well-formed opinion about her and they didn't like her. And so one of the things that we did was re- sort of reintroduced her in a different way, telling her mom's story about her very difficult childhood upbringing and how that motivated Hillary Clinton to run for president um, and get into public service in the first place. We probably could have honed back in on that because it, it worked at the beginning. I think we probably could have honed in on that a little bit more at the end, just sort of reminding people of her, to your point, accomplishments and also what drove her into public service in the first place. Those moms ads were very effective. And those moms ads were run in sort of the, what, fall of mm-hmm. seven, uh, 15. 15. Yeah. And so, is, and, and they were in the primary states or whatever, but they were actually with cable television and with digital, we're reintroducing her to everyone too, not just. Right. And you're right. And look, Rich and I have a philosophy at our firm uh, that a lot of voters, especially independent swing voters, mm-hmm. because of who they are, they're independent swing voters, they don't really like politics. So that doesn't mean they're watching ads like three right. of us are. Sort of don't kind of tune in to the fine points until the end. Until the end. So a lot, of our, a lot of our big campaigns, we actually come back and run those exact ads again in late September and October. And that's even more important in states that vote by mail, too, because a lot of these states, people are making decisions 
you know, they're getting their ballots 28 days a month before. And so in some ways, the campaign has to restart for some of those people. And so, you know, the Cinema campaign, we did that, too. We sort of circled back with our bio, the Hassan campaign. We circled back. And your point about the mom's ads, you know, if we'd been running those ads maybe in September or whatever like that in all those states, who knows? Well, message yeah. repetition, which is, I think, what you're talking. I mean, that that's so important both in your paid advertising campaign and also what you do in your free media, right? I mean, sometimes you get candidates who are like, well, I gave that answer in that interview before. Why do you want me to give that same answer again? Shouldn't I do something slightly different? And, you know, the answer is no. You have to keep saying what your message is, even though you think that you've said it all these times before and that people know it. Most most people haven't heard it. So you want to take advantage of that moment to say exactly what your message is, your vision. You got to say it over and over again to leave that impression. I think, and that's the same with, with advertising, right? You can't, you know, the whole reason why you put up a whole ads with a bunch of points behind it is because you need to leave that impression. Sort of three points on that. One, I've noticed Geico is rerunning all their ads from like the caveman I ads and all the that. So, thing, the yeah, so they brought the caveman, and the caveman and the little pig ad and all the stuff. So they, you know, clearly same thing. Mikey, life, Matt, you know. Dating well, it's myself. for a new. I mean, there. It's a new set of. It's, it's it's a different audience, right? It's a different like, audience. Different those ads time. were ten years ago. Exactly. They worked then. Why not see if they work now? Well, and this will date myself, sort of back to the D Triple C stuff. But you know, I'll never forget doing research in both 86 and 90 on Newt Gingrich and their, you know, he was doing these races and we had these candidates that were, you know, the Ben Joneses and the Dave Worley's going after him. But then when he finally took the house, we were looking at all the research and we pulled all the clips back from when he came to Congress in like the late seventies and eighties. And every single clip was the same thing. And I just sat back and I said, this is Doug's point about message repetition. I mean, the guys were saying the same thing for 12 wow. years and, and, Sometimes as Democrats, I can say, sometimes we do a couple press conferences and say, oh, we already did that. Let's right. move on. You know? Right, right. It's, a, it's an area where I thought we did very well in 2018. Uh, I thought our candidates did very well with sticking on a message, House candidates in particular, on health care, on pre-existing conditions, and not getting off of that. And they were very disciplined. Can I say one thing about that? I totally agree. But I think the one thing that is, I think, underreported about the 2018 class is that these were 40 people that I think the quality of their character, what I talked about before, we ran way more positive advertising than we've ever run before uh, and on the campaigns that we worked on electing a couple people to Congress and helping the DCCC do a lot. So a lot more positive. But look at who these people were. They were women. They were veterans. Most of them were under the age of 45. They were younger. And in the end, they were pragmatic progressives. Right. So they, right. They, they, they were able to win these swing districts with the messages Doug was talking about, but they also were strong enough in the progressive community to get good online fundraising, you know, which drove it. Mm -hmm. So they weren't so far left that they were disqualified in these swing districts, but they were progressives because people wanted change. And I think that was it's an important symbol about the 40 people that won as we think about maybe presidential campaign. Because you got to have that balance. You got to raise that money from the base. But you, in the end, the voters have the last word on, on, yeah, on, on what your positions are. That's right. Um, well, David, I just want to thank you so much again for coming uh, back to or, or coming to our show today. It's great to see you. Um, you're one of the best in the business. I always love to get your insights 
Um, you certainly have a historical perspective because you've been in this business for quite a long time. So thank you so much for joining us. And Doug, do you have any parting words as well? I'm not going to let David leave until I just get some early thoughts on the 2020 race. You don't need to rank the candidates like Elrod and I do during our Power Five, but even just a couple minutes on you know, what you're seeing as far as these rollouts and, and uh, the, 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 the early strategies of these campaigns, messaging. Uh, two things. One is I think it's going to be at least a two-act play, if not a three-act play. And I think the campaigns now are all very much in act one who they are as people. Mm -hmm. They're trying to connect with voters really on personality, on who they are. And it's, you know, and they have to do a lot of message repetition. I don't think an announcement in one tour is going to do it. I'd spend three or four months introducing on who people are as, as people. And, and, and I think, cause that's, what's going to excite the voters. I think the primary voters I've seen and in touch with in polls we saw last year, they're looking for inspiration. They're looking for someone to inspire them. They're looking for a reason to believe. And so once the four or five candidates connect on sort of the biography or thing, I think those candidates will rise to the top. And then I think it's going to be act two. It's going to be very much again, dating myself, sort of the, the Mondale attack on Gary Hart, where's the beef? You could see a candidate rise quickly over the next three or four months based on their personality, a couple of good videos, maybe a debate performance or two. But then people are going to say, all right, what do they stand for? The sort of x-ray of either their record or what they do. And I'll give, you know, uh, Senator Warren's done a good job of kind of doing both. You kind of get a sense her act two to and her policy positions. But most of the other ones, you don't really see what that is. But I, you know, I would be encouraging that we're not working for any presidential at this point. And, um, you know, I think Act One's more important, but I think that there's going to be a point pretty quickly when if people really like you, they're going to want to know what you want to do. So that's one thing. The second thing is I'm not sure we're doing the math on the money as much as people uh, really think. You know, I, I you know, being a, a guy who's sort of done some media buys in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, and Nevada, then with looming California. I think the campaigns are all going to have a very strategic conundrum on when to spend, except for maybe if Bloomberg gets in or, you know, the, some of the super, super wealthy candidates. But even the candidates that do quote unquote well and have $50 million, $70 million to spend, that's not, that doesn't go very far if you have to spread it over Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada, and then start thinking about California. And most of these campaigns, from what I understand, are really building up pretty strong staffs, field yeah. staff. I think there's going to be a lot of overhead. There's going to be a lot of money spent on data. And so, you know, you know, a couple of years ago, the Iowa caucuses, you know, you could easily spend $50 you know, million dollars in there. And so how... How are the campaigns with the 50 to $70 million, where are they even they're going to spend? And then if you're a campaign that only has 10 or 20, you're really going to have to take your shot. And so is it going to be a combination of catching fire in a debate and then raising a lot of money? But I think at some point we should all sit back and do the math because that's going to be a real parlor game about where they spend. It, it really is. I This the stuff that is a, a political wonk like me, I really – I, I kind of love to get into the, like the, the thinking of the strategic thinking behind how you're spending your money and where to spend your money. Because, of course, the other factor that we've talked about several times on this podcast, and we'll certainly be talking about it more uh, this year, is the fact that 
uh, two very delegate heavy states, Texas and California, now have their primaries on Super Tuesday right after South Carolina. And of course, early voting in California in particular starts the day of the Iowa caucuses. So if you're somebody like Kamala Harris, where you know, maybe I'm not going to win Iowa, but I'm going to play really well in South Carolina. I need to have a strong top three finish in Iowa, but I'm going to really put my cars into South Carolina. And then I'm going to focus on making sure that I win my home state. How do you apportion your, you know, your budget to reflect your strategy? And it's just going to be very interesting to see. Then if you're somebody like Amy Klobuchar, who has a really strong chance of doing well in Iowa, but the other three states, early states, maybe not so much, but then picking some of those Super Tuesday states to make sure that she stays in the game, where do you spend your money? It's going to be so fascinating to watch. We haven't seen we haven't seen a race like this in in quite some time. Uh, totally up up for grabs, I think, for the nomination. I hope all these managers can play chess well because it's going to be uh, you know I think a strategic battle in terms of where you spend your money, where you spend the candidates' time, uh, where do you want to play, and it's going to be real fascinating to see how they arrive at these decisions. Well, and you remember '92, which some people say might be the most you know, sort of like the open seat of the last campaign that sort of maybe like this one, mm-hmm. Harkin was in and no one competed in Iowa. Right. So that really just pushed Clinton and Songus, you know, who are, and Kerry, but Kerry kind of faded, but he ran ads in, in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. pushed them all. That New Hampshire was the game, right? Yeah. you know, and it was everything. And so your point is exactly right. The disruption in the media and how people get information has changed. The power of cable news, you know, his sort of it's more powerful than ever before. The Rachel Maddow, you know, is is an important thing. I mean, that's a place you go. You're communicating so much information there. But then you you really do have to decide on these four or five early states. And then my gut says, if you win, do well enough in California. You have to have a plan, but, you know, there's no way to budget for that. I mean, you just have to that you're, you know, it is going to be the campaigns that have the discipline to sort of figure out how to do those first four or five and then have the secret back room of who's ever doing the post-California Texas plan. It's like, what are they doing back there? Oh, they're figuring out, you know, the next 70 percent of the delegates. But. It's going to be hard to say, well, maybe they should be in Manchester. You know? Well, and that's actually really smart. I kind of like the, like, you know, notion of having, like, the California-Texas war room, secret strategy war room that each campaign or a lot of campaigns will be deploying because even if you decide to spend X amount of your budget, your media budget, in those two states, because of the delegate strategy, because of the way that you are deciding, you know, where to strategically uh, target voters in delegate-rich parts of the state, you're not just going to be doing mass advertising. You might decide, oh, I'm just going to focus on, you know, the border, like, you know, the Brownsville media market and the El Paso media market. It just depends on, like, who you're trying to attract. And then you're paying attention to what other campaigns and do, are doing in that state, too. And maybe you're playing in, that media, in those media markets. Or maybe you're just saying, I'm not going to focus on these areas. I'm going to focus on areas that I feel like are slightly untapped and try to pick up delegates there. It's just going to be so fascinating. It will be, and I think this will be the first cycle where some campaigns will literally make the decision is going up in five Texas media markets, Austin, El Paso, you know, as you mentioned, a couple of them that are sort of affordable. Is that more valuable than just sort of doing well enough in Nevada, South Carolina, and getting a piece in California and ride the cable news momentum? Right, right. Because, you know, Bernie sort of proved that the cable news momentum 
got him tied with Hillary in many states long before he did advertising. Sure, free earned and, media, and MSNBC so, and CNN. Well, thankfully, we have a podcast like The Electables that it's, that's going to break all this stuff down, look at it every week, and have guests like David Dixon on, who's a legend in the game, and we're, we're just honored to have you on. And thank you so much for taking your time. Uh, it's been, um, I think, a great conversation. Well, thank you guys for having me. Super fun. Thank you, David. So this has been The Electables for my partner in crime, the super talented Adrian Elrod and Doug Cornell. We'll see you next time.